Listen, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Flip open, click open, however you get to God's Word, get it open because we're going to be looking uh, at Luke 24 here in just a second. You know, fear has a close cousin named doubt. And fear and doubt are the cornerstones of the walls that go up between people in relationships. Isn't it amazing how often fear and doubt show up together in our stories? If you can track with this, keep listening because it's going to show up in the biblical story as well. It turns out that fear and doubt are are actually two of the cornerstones that build the wall that keep people not only in their relationships with one another, but in their relationship to God. Jesus, ever the mentor, ever the great leader, moves us forward out of the stuck that we find ourselves in. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. This is sort of a mantra we have around here. It's, it captures some of the invitation that Jesus extends to us in the scriptures. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. This invitation of Jesus includes bringing your fear and bringing your doubts. But get ready, because he doesn't leave us stuck where we are in our fear and our doubt. And it's a wild ride where he takes us. So come as you are, but don't stay that way. You know, we're in a bit of a leadership crisis right now. I can't think of a time in all of my life that I've ever seen more fear and doubt of leaders and more fear and doubt in leaders. If you're a leader in any capacity right now, if you lead anyone, you are being tested. Leaders are being tested right now. And some of them, many of them, are being exposed. The testing has come. When we get bumped with testing, what's inside of us just spills out, just like a cup you're holding, right? You don't plan for it. Whatever's inside comes spilling out, and that's what's happening right now. You know, the latest this week, uh, even more information has come out about Ravi Zacharias. And this is particularly painful to me because I've benefited so much from his apologetics, from his teaching, from his sound biblical theology, from his gentlemanliness as he has debated and discussed the Christian faith over the many, many years. I have many books in my library that have helped me a lot. When a Christian leader falls, the world sees Christian leader as one title. Kind of those within the evangelical community say, yeah, that person was a false teacher and kind of easy to spot from a mile away. That person falling to sin, not that big of a deal, not that big of a shock. But there are some that are most painful. And with, when Rabbi Zacharias and the things that have come out sort of post-death for him, it's been this message in my heart. It's been a warning. If it could happen to him, Dave, it can happen to you. Church, We should take from this being on our guard that if it can happen to him, we are susceptible to sin. Sin is crouching and lurking at our door. John Maxwell is a famous author on leadership, and he says that every follower asks these three questions of their leaders. Number one, do you care for me? Number two, can I trust you? And the third question is this, can you help me? 
Why would you follow someone that can't help you? Do you care for me? Can I trust you? And can you help me? Quite simply, leaders are to add value to others and not to themselves. This leadership principle applies across the board. And when that goes wrong, it all goes wrong. And so people are distrustful, fearful, doubtful of all leadership. Let me say the principle again. Leaders are to add value to others, not to themselves. Think about this in marriage. That applies in marriage. If you're a parent today, a grandparent today, this applies in parenting. That's a leadership position. That same principle applies in the school. It applies in business. It applies in politics and law enforcement. And it certainly applies in the church. That leaders are gifted with leadership. We need leaders. It's a God-given gift. But leaders are to add value to others, not to themselves. How do we do this? Well, Jesus shows us how. A Christian is simply a little Christ, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. We say, come as you are, but don't stay that way, because Jesus is alive and well, and Jesus is on the move. He's not sitting around in a church. He's not hanging out in Bible study or in some dusty room somewhere. I want you to know that your leaders at this church, the shepherds God has called to shepherd here at Neighborhood Bible Church, we are not unaware and we are not dismissive of all of the news cycles that come through every 24 hours. We are looking ahead as good shepherds should do. We are looking around as good shepherds should do. We are prayerfully looking out for the sheep. Saying, God, where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to stay? Where do you want us to advance? Where do you want us to hang tight? What's your timing? Where are the dangers? Where are the green pastures? You probably have fear and doubt in your church leaders because you see this stuff going on all around you. I want you to know we understand we are accountable to God as to how we shepherd the flock that's been entrusted to us. This is from our membership, uh, exploring membership course that I teach here at this church for every new member to come through to get an understanding of who we are as a church, what we are covenanting together. If you're a member here, you have covenanted to some things here at NBC. But leaders go first. So before you covenant to anything at NBC, the elders covenant to the people the following. We are committed to lead as the Bible instructs. We all get to read from the same playbook. We're not hiding behind any secret documents. That is that we are committed to leading willingly, eagerly, by example, and under the authority of the chief shepherd. I won't take time to read it, but write down 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. Someone put that in the live chat for me. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. We are committed to leading willingly, eagerly, by example, and under the authority of the chief shepherd, because that's how the scriptures tell us to lead. You know, as we continue to look to God's word each week, 
The Spirit continues to point to instruction and to warning and to comfort and to questions and answers that we wouldn't even dream up if we were just constantly chasing the winds of the headlines. And this week is no different. I want you to watch as Jesus models good leadership. Good leadership that we long to follow, that we know instinctively should be there. I want you to watch as Jesus speaks into the fear and doubt of the disciples. Jesus goes in and he dismantles the distance that has formed with the disciples and Jesus. Why? Because the disciples had a friendship failure. We know all about those. Calling the title this morning, Moving Out of State. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but this is our new California pastime, right? Moving, leaving, getting out of Dodge. You probably know someone, or maybe you're pondering, or maybe you've already moved and you're watching us from out of state. Let me just say this, if you're considering it, I have a better criteria for you than the following. Some people are moving because of the high cost of living here, I get it. Some are living because the politics frustrate you. Some are living because the cultural climate is not to your liking. Some are leaving because of traffic. Yes, even during COVID, when we're all supposed to be at home, there's tons of traffic here. And some of you simply hate the great weather and you want to test yourself with some terrible weather. So you're moving. Those are all maybe fine criteria. Let me give you what I think is a much better one. Ready? Here it is. You don't need to write it down. Just listen. Is Jesus leading you onward? If Jesus is leading you out of state, then go. Go and prepare for your family. Get out there and go go where Jesus is leading. If Jesus is not leading you out of state, then by all means, stay where Jesus has you. You know, Christians are followers of Jesus, not followers of trends. Uh, Christians chase Jesus, not the market, right? And Christians follow Jesus, not the herd, So keep looking to Jesus. Keep setting your mind on what God wants for you, what this life is all about. And maybe it's in this testing time. Maybe it's in this place that your faith and your usefulness and your purpose are going to come into sharpest clarity in this season. So I'm playing on this theme, calling it moving out of state. Only here, state is not a California state, but it's the state of doubt. Right? Doubt can be a state that we're in, a mindset So moving out of state. People are on the move. Why do we move? We move because, uh, or we consider moving, because we're looking for a better life. We're sort of looking for what, what does God have for me? Where should I be? We wait and don't move because we're weighing our options. We're trying to discern things. What we have is this realization, we're not God, we're human. And as humans, we don't have all of the information, and we can't see very far down the future. Like every human before you, every human that will come after you, you take it one step at a time, and you see sort of as a fog, right? You, you make plans for next week, you make plans for uh, next month, maybe a couple years out plan, but we don't see very far. We don't have all of the information. You know, the same is true with our doubts and our fears. They arise because we don't have all the information, and we can't see the future, Let me say this, that the state of doubt, if that were an actual location, the state of doubt is a needed 
place to visit and a terrible place to live. We've all been places that are really exciting to go visit, but we wouldn't want to live there. The state of doubt is a needed place to go visit. Some of you avoid doubt like the plague. You pretend it doesn't exist, and then it creeps in the back door. So the state of doubt is a needed place to visit, but a horrible place to live. Some in our culture sort of think that it's the most humble or the most evolved or the most intellectual to remain in a state of doubt and doubt everything. Maybe your religious affiliation is skeptic. I'm a skeptic. But really, a skeptic believes in all kinds of things. They have grounded their ethics, their decision-making on all kinds of things, but it's sort of put forth as if it's the most humble to not say that you really know anything for, for certain. That doesn't really work, right, with all kinds of different scenarios. Just walk into your bank, and, and there's hard numbers there that actually exist and you need to live by. Jesus has words about those who would maybe stay in this state of doubt as a permanent state of being. I want you to consider for a moment that you're out with one of your children or maybe a a younger friend or, or someone, but there's a child that is frozen in fear because she is about to cross a bridge and she doesn't trust that it will hold. Okay, so you're about ready to walk across a footbridge over, over a, a, a river, right? And this child doesn't want to take another step forward. Here's what we don't do. As parents, I don't look to my child. I don't applaud her as what a humble state that is to, to, to not be certain about it. And so why don't you just stay here? I don't applaud her for being the most humble, telling her to remain in her doubt. Nor do I shame her for doubting. Right? I don't shame her for doubting. In fact, it's a great thing, and I applaud her skepticism. What I would do is this. I would want to nurture her muscle of reasoning power. Maybe I'd walk to the edge, point down, and go, that's a scary river. That's a high distance, isn't it? And it makes so much sense that you would be scared to walk across. Good for you. I would welcome her skepticism because it would be an opportunity to teach her reasoning skills. And I would lead her out of her doubt. I would do this by explanation, but I would also do it by example. How would I do that? I'd walk across the bridge. I might do a cartwheel across the bridge. I might sit and eat a peanut butter or jelly sandwich right in the middle of the bridge, right? I would jump up and down. So I would explain it to her, but I would also show her by example. Leaders go first. I want you to see this today because this is exactly what Jesus does today. He provides his followers with what they need to know so that they can know that he is really alive and know that they are really loved. Let me say that again because it's so key. Jesus is a good leader. He goes first, both by explanation and by example. He provides his followers what they need so they can know that he is really alive and so that they can know that they are really loved. You know, there's three categories of doubts or questions or fears that, that, that can arise. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in our, in our high school youth group. Uh, they came up with just some awesome questions. I want you to know, we have thinking youth around here. I love it. And we just invited them. We say, hey, what are the doubts you have about the scriptures? What doubts are brought to you and you don't know how to answer them? And so we talked about this idea that there's sort of a, a, a good thing to do with your questions and your doubts is to, to question your questions and doubt your doubts 
right? Doubt your doubts and say, maybe my doubts are wrong. And question your question, saying, where's this question really coming from? Because not all questions are equal, right? I talked about three categories of questions. There's the comical kind of question, and I think there's comical fears and doubts that we might have as well. Um, like this, like, like, what's up with deja vu, right? Um, why do men have nipples? This is a conversation my, my six-year-old and I had the other day. I was getting ready for work, and he came, and he pointed at those, what are those? You know, and I'm like, well, they're called nipples, and pull up your shirt, you've got them too, high five. And then, you know, he's like, what are they for? I'm like, well, curiously enough, I don't really know, all right? So we, it was fun conversation. So fun to have kids, there's always questions coming at you. Um, how about this, why does tickling not work on yourself? Just kind of a comical, weird thing, right? Why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways, right? And then also, what's up with deja vu? So that's sort of the comical category. How about the curious category? Curious questions are not life-threatening. They're not really funny. They're actually genuine questions you have, but you'll move on with your week without knowing the answer. Here's a few of mine. Why did God make so many stars? Right? For centuries, people didn't even know how many stars there were. We still don't know. We're still sending things out and getting reports back. How many species are there left to be discovered in the ocean depths, in the skies, in the insect world? Um, Why don't I see miracles today like I see in the scripture? Will I ever see one? But then there's a third category of question. There's a third category of doubt or fear, especially as it pertains to life and why we're here and the deeper meanings of things. And it's, it's, it's not comical. It's not curious. It's a crisis. These are like crisis questions that can emerge. Is there a God? Is there really a divine book written by God that should have authority over my life? What do I do with the apparent inconsistencies and the ongoing attacks that I feel as a Christian? God, if you're really there, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you helping him, her, this loved one that I care about? How long, O Lord? These are the crisis questions that that hit us and keep us awake at night. If you're new to the faith, if you're new to Christianity, if you're just checking things out, welcome. I want you to know, Jesus actually creates space for doubt. He creates room for doubt. He actually invites us to the state of doubt to question things and to dig into things. If you have them, welcome. You are in really good company. John Foreman is the lead singer of a band called Switchfoot. I really love the band, really love John's music. He's just a very thoughtful, creative songwriter. He just released a song February 12th, a couple weeks ago, and it's called this. It's called Jesus, I Have My Doubts. And I love that he just sort of deals with the hard that he's facing in life. And here's sort of the refrain that he sings. Jesus, I know you have your reasons. I have my doubts. Jesus, I know you have your reasons. I have my doubts. I want you to show you from the text today. Jesus wants the great exchange to happen. Let me give you my reasons, some of them. I won't give you all of them. You can't handle that. But let me take your doubts. The good news for you is Jesus addresses our doubts. So here's my, here's my invitation. Let yourself be led. Being led is a gift. Let yourself be led this morning by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He'll lead you out of the state of doubt. Here is a key idea that I want to get into our heads and thoughts sort of as we frame this discussion. When it comes to doubt, I want you to see this from the text. Jesus doesn't say to his followers, how could you? 
How could you doubt? That's a shame-inducing, withdraw-inducing kind of a statement. No doubt you have heard that from a leader in your life. How dare you is how it may come across. Not, Not just how could you, but how dare you. Jesus doesn't say, how could you? Jesus says this to our doubts. Why would you? Why would you doubt? And he's saying it because he's saying, why would you doubt when I'm right here? When there's no reason to stay in the state of doubt that you're in. And he seems to say it with sort of a twinkle in his eye. Mm, This fish is really good. Could you pass the bread, please, while we're talking about all this? So follow along as we read. Really quick, we're finishing up the the gospel of Luke. Remember that Luke is a doctor by trade. So when it comes to bodily resurrection and a real body being alive or dead, it's it's just an interesting overlay that, that it's a doctor writing this account. We called it the good doctor to sort of play on the fact that Luke was a physician, but also that the word God is embedded in the word doctor. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to bring health and healing and wholeness to our utter brokenness. And Jesus isn't just the good doctor. He's the good doctor who's also a leader, and leaders go first. And this passage is sort of like a really strange autopsy account where we get to see the examination of a corpse that has come back to life Watch this, by the corpse that has come back to life. So so the one doing the examination and the autopsy is Jesus himself. If an autobiography is someone telling their own story, maybe this would be an auto-autopsy. I'm not sure. I'm still working out the details on this. It's a little bit hazy, but let's jump in. Jesus, as a good leader, goes first, and what he's doing is he is showing us what life beyond the grave looks like. You ever heard it said? You ever thought it yourself? Well, no one can really know what's beyond the grave. That's nonsense. Jesus is showing us what life beyond the grave looks like. Victory over death. Hear me. Victory over death is not a metaphor. It's real. Jesus comes walking in. He's showing us his body. While it's still his, it's distinctly and uniquely him, Jesus of Nazareth, it is changed. He appears and disappears. He shows up through locked doors. And he's showing us his love. His post-cross peace that he extends to his followers uh, in, in in the first century extends through the centuries to you and I. So just before I read the text in full, I want you to consider the doubts that must have existed in the minds and hearts of the disciples of Jesus at this point. Stop and really sit with them and get into this setting. And then watch how Jesus interacts with them. They not only doubt the facts of resurrection because dead people don't come back to life, but they also doubt their status with Jesus, their leader whom they abandoned. Jesus offers proof of life and proof of love. Listen, or follow along as I read. Luke 24, starting in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened 
and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Okay, so you're in the room. You're one of the first disciples. How does this feel? Each one in that room scattered. Each went their own way. Some openly denied Jesus. We know of Peter's account. He even sealed it with a curse if he was lying. One of them who wasn't in the room was the one that would go out and betray him as the inside man selling Jesus out. And now he's suddenly here. Jesus offers peace and proof. Why? Because he can. Why would he leave his friends in the state of doubt? So, first let's see this, that Jesus speaks to the self-doubt going on in the disciples. He offers proof of his love. There's a parallel passage to this. The the gospel writer of John um, writes in John 20, 19, he adds this detail, catch it. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Do you see it? Doors locked. Why? Fear of the Jews. So, the word tense like doesn't even begin to describe the mood that must be going on. This is their hideout. Why are they hiding out? Because really powerful people, they are fearful and doubtful of their leaders. Really powerful religious people had just killed their leader. What's more, the way that they killed Jesus was very public and very brutal. Right? It was a crucifixion. So that means that all associated with this public criminal, criminal enemy number one are suddenly at risk. It's like having our faces plastered all around the city, all around screens on people's hands. And then Jesus shows up. Now before jumping to the great news that we know this actually is, sit with the disciples for a minute. Jesus just shows up. Uh, when, when you get into, to, um, or let, let, me, let me just have you this, get into your mind the last time that you really let down a friend, someone that you really cared for and loved. Maybe you promised you wouldn't stay late for work, and then you did, and you missed the event. Maybe, um, maybe you spoke unkindly, and it got back to them. And now you both know that that happened. Maybe you missed being by their side. They had a hospital stay. It was shorter than you thought. You meant to go. You didn't. And now what happens is this. You've let them down and you dread the next conversation you're going to have with this person. How will they react? Will they be quick to want to restore it? How can you make this right? Should I just keep avoiding them? Jesus shows up in their hideout. Unannounced. 
not even through the door like we would expect. What guilt and shame and fear must there have been with the disciples? What do you think the internal temperature of these guys was? How was Jesus going to react? Is this a revenge moment? Is there a scolding coming? Are they going to get grounded? I mean, Jesus is back. We all know what just happened. We left him at his greatest crisis. And what does Jesus say? Do not miss this. Peace to you. You know, we don't feel the impact without getting our heads into this situation. I have let people down that I love, but never probably this much that the disciples did with Jesus in this setting. So it's ratcheted up even more. And the first words post-resurrection that Jesus extends to his, his fallen disciples, his backsliding disciples, is peace. The word here is shalom. You've no doubt heard tons of talked about the word shalom. It's, it's not peace like hippie 60s. It's wholeness. It's prosperity. It's harmony. It's restoration. Shalom. Peace to you. You know, this is really a very, very typical greeting. But now, it just must have been pregnant with meaning. This would be something like coming up and seeing your friend and going, How are you? Uh, That's a really common greeting. How are you, right? But maybe they had just survived some super life-altering, harrowing experience, and you're seeing them for the first time. How are you? It's, It's the same greeting, but different meaning here. Jesus shows up, doesn't say boo. He says peace to you. Wholeness. It's me. I've faced death. I've walked through the grave. I'm on the other side. It's conquered. We are good. Peace to you. Remember, I mean, I don't know how the conversation went because we don't have it. But, but Jesus may have said, you know, remember that not only did I predict that you'd all be scattered. I mean, this was written down. The, the shepherd's going to be struck down. The sheep are going to scatter. That was already prophesied. But remember I also said to you these words? I promised I wouldn't leave you as orphans, that I would come back to you. And that on that day you'd know that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. All that's in John 14, 18. If you want to go to read it for yourself. So what is Jesus? He's a giver. So what does Jesus give? He gives them peace. Restoration to the relationship. Assurance in the midst of their fear and their trauma. You know, Jesus has the right and the character to offer peace. He was the one sinned against. He was the one betrayed, abandoned. So he is the one who is able to extend forgiveness, peace, shalom, restoration of the relationship. One commentator said this, Jesus is far more willing to forgive men than men are to be forgiven. And far more ready to pardon people than men are to be pardoned. Free, full, and undeserved forgiveness to the very uttermost is not the manner of man, but it is the manner of Christ. Here's a question for you this morning. What shalom is Jesus speaking to you? Peace to you. 
What shalom is Jesus speaking to you? He continues to speak peace, wholeness into our brokenness. In fact, Jesus has a way of breaking through the barricaded hiding places that we go into hiding, and he shows up in our life, and he extends the offer of peace. Maybe there's a part two to this question. What shalom, what peace can you offer to a relationship that has frayed? Maybe you are the one who's wronged. If so, then you have the right and the power of Christ to extend shalom, to extend peace to a frayed relationship. We're commanded in Scripture, live at peace with all people, all men and women and children, so far as it depends on you. All you can do is offer. Jesus is setting forth the offer, the proof of his love, the proof of his resurrection, but he doesn't headlock anyone and shove it down their throat and make them take it. We have this you first theme for our community groups this year. You first is quite simply, we love because he first loved us. But it's not just that, it's we love as he loved us, to the manner and to the degree with which he loved us. That means we need his power, right, to be doing this. But we can extend forgiveness. Why? Because we receive forgiveness on a daily basis. We know what it is to be forgiven, and so we're able to turn and extend forgiveness to other people. So Jesus offers peace because he can. Why would he leave them in trauma? He extends peace and says, hey, we're good. But not only that, he offers proof. Why? Because he can. Proof of love, proof of life. You know, Jesus speaks to their troubled faces and their doubting hearts. But again, instead of how could you, which is a shame-inducing, withdraw-inducing kind of response, how could you doubt me? Or how dare you? Oh, we've heard those before from people. Instead, he says this, why would you? Why would you doubt when it's me, myself? The language is like really strong that it's actually me. There's no need to stay in the state of doubt and fear. You know, being a Christian requires faith. We're told it's impossible to please God without faith. Faith is sort of like this button that we push And when we push that button, it sort of activates God's divine saving work. But being a Christian also requires rational thought. God does not demand of us just a blind leap of faith. So being a Christian requires faith and rational thought. So God provides strength to have faith, and God God provides reason to believe. Put your big sibling or parent hat on for a second. If you were to have someone younger than you that you care about, maybe a little bit more naive to you about how the world works, and they come and they tell you this thing that they're about to buy or do or whatever, and it all seems too good to be true, what wisdom do you pass on to that little bro, that little sis, that little child of yours? What wisdom would you pass on? You would say this, wait a minute, if something ever seems too good to be true, What should you do? Test it. Try it. Examine it. Read the fine print. Talk to older people. Say, hey, this seems too good to be true. What do you think? When something seems too good to be true, we should examine it. 
Why are they troubled? Well, quite simply, because dead people don't show up in the hideout. That's why. Why are they troubled? It says their fear, that it was was full of joy. It's like this trembling, like this seems too good to be true. We can't even get our minds around how good this might be. I don't know if you were the brother or sister or had a brother or sister like my brother John. But my brother John's about two years older than me, and he loved to scare me. When we were little, we shared a room almost our whole growing up years, and he just loved to scare me. So I'd come walking up the stairs at night. We had sort of an open banister along the one side, and as I'm walking up at night, you know, maybe I, had, I left something down there. It's all dark down there. I'm a little kid. John would reach through the railing and grab my ankle as I'm walking up, and just, ow, that jolt of adrenaline, you know what I'm saying, what, what happens with that? Now, what John learned quickly, he would come and put his face right next to my nose until I would wake up. And I'd wake up and there's a giant face right in front of me. Well, in the, in the uh, fight, flight, or freeze range, you know which one I am? I'm more of a fight. So if I'm cornered, if I have an adrenaline rush, I do things. So one day, uh, it was the last time he ever did it, John put his hand through and he grabbed my ankle. And when, in one move, like I'm Jason Bourne, I go, bam! And I just hit his arm, kind of hitting it the wrong way. And he yells out, what's your problem? And I'm like, what's your problem? Anyways, he never did that again. One time he snuck in late, he put his foot right next to my head. This is in high school, I don't recommend sneaking out or sneaking back in, but this is what happened. And my window was slightly ajar. Outside of our window is a ledge, like a little fake uh, you know, ledge that's here. He's standing on that. We're on a two-story room. And in that slowed down motion, I woke up, realized there was a foot stepping through my room, and I had the time to process, I need to grab this foot and chuck it out the window. I will be killing this perpetrator of this crime. I'm okay with that. He's breaking into my house. I will be the protector of our home. And in all in one second, he goes, David, it's me. It's, you know, and, he, and he was like trying to calm me down because he was afraid, I think, of being thrown out the window. And I think we made such a loud uh, noise that our parents woke up. Not sure. Mom, you're probably watching this. You can tell me if, that, uh, if, if you guys were privy to that one or not. All that to say this. Intense adrenaline rush when Jesus appears in the hideout. Ah! I mean, it's just there, like sort of bubbling in. What do you do with Jesus suddenly being in the room? It's like the new bright light of the risen Jesus has appeared, and and the disciples are sort of needing their time to let their eyes adjust and their brain to sort of catch up. Wait, 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 what is happening? Again, if we just read this cold, like we know the story, you, you, you just will we'll miss all of this. The way that Jesus leads them out of their doubt is so marvelous. I want you to see this. The way that Jesus leads them out of doubt is so incredible. Think of all the different ways that when there's a friendship failure in your life, think of all the different ways you've tried or people have tried to restore that. Jesus leads them out of doubt in an incredible way. I asked my daughter Cassie if I could share this story. I always do with my family. Otherwise, it stinks to have your dad as a pastor because your stuff gets aired. But we were actually up at Rob's place at Twain Hart. And they have this great cabin up there. We were on a family vacation. Everyone was together. And, um, and Cassie was, was uh, on the verge. She was kind of late in our family for, for riding a bike. And, and she really doubted that she could ride her bike. Uh, her fears were real, and they had her convinced this was not going to happen, and she just she didn't want to talk about it anymore. She didn't want to think about it. It was just upsetting her that we were even talking about it. But 
Cassie is a Carlson, and here's what that means. Carlsons call out in each other more than they see in themselves. And it wasn't shaming that got Cassie moving. In other words, we didn't say, how could you, Cassie? Shame on you for not trying to ride your bike. None of that. Instead, it was a wooing. It was a cheering on. Cassie, why would you not ride a bike? You're going to love it. We're on vacation. We have nothing else to do but to make this happen. Your bike is here. We're here. You've got this because you've got us. And then here's what happened. Rob's driveway has sort of this long, gravelly downhill slope, perfect for riding a bike. And what our family members did is they all got along either side of the road, that little driveway. And Cassie stood at the top of this terrifying, not so steep, just a little gentle slope, terrifying hill, and she began to pedal. Why? She had a great cloud of witnesses cheering her on. And if there was ever going to be sort of a leaning to the fall, we'd catch her. Someone was going to be there to catch. I tell you, it wasn't shame that got her moving. It was a cheering on that got her moving. It was a cloud of witnesses saying, why would you stay in the state of not riding a bike when you could ride it and love it? Guess what? In moments, she learned how to ride a bike. She was a bike riding fool that whole trip. We rode bikes all over the place up there. It just clicked for her. She rode away in moments from her doubts and fears. Now, why are we like that as a family? We learned it from Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. His love isn't shaming but cheering. He calls out more in us than we ever see in ourselves. And it's both terrifying and terrific to follow Jesus. Why so troubled, disciples? Why do doubts arise in your heart here see my hands touch them look at my feet and he shows them touch me it's me it's really me and then he makes a point of eating before their very eyes he doesn't just offer peace to restore relationship jesus offers proof to allow for reasoning to kick in When Christians speak of the resurrection, we speak of a literal, physical, bodily rising from the dead. It's critical. It's foundation to what Jesus wanted to show us. In fact, God saw fit that the gospel writers show us this account of Jesus appealing to the senses of the disciples to satisfy their doubts. Spirits don't eat broiled fish spirits you can't you can't touch their hand and feel the scars look where dr luke again one who knows probably a little bit something about the physical life and death of a body look where he goes with this remember luke wrote a sequel it's called acts acts chapter 1 verse 1 says this this in this book this is his sequel O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I'm sorry, in the first book, O Theophilus, that's Luke, I I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them 
after his suffering, catch this, by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Dr. Luke is showing us it's, it's these convincing proofs that I want to show to you. Acts 10, he goes on, he says, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, watch this, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. What's more is that Jesus moves on from physical, empirical evidence to the written testimony of the Bible, things they already had in their hand. This is where we're going to get to next week, and it's especially exciting for us who didn't get to touch Jesus or dine with Jesus, but we still have this direct line of evidence to Jesus. A couple weeks ago, starting in January actually, we did this everyday Bible series and I've just been giving little helps uh, to kind of get us thinking and here's the one this week. The Bible is testable. Remember the Bible is singable, the Bible is hearable, the Bible is testable. Test everything, the truth can handle it. Scripture makes this claim of itself, it's bold, it's sweeping, it's, it's very exposing if it's not true, that all Scripture is inspired by God. In fact, if you read the Bible, you see that it actually invites scrutiny. You know how? It, it puts dates on paper, it puts places on paper, it puts rulers on paper, all testable and verifiable by outside sources. Did someone like that actually rule? Did those events take place? Was it really widespread like that? And we come back over and over and over again to see that history, archaeology, and scientific discovery continue to grow the verifiable nature of the truth found in Scripture. All these written down dates, leaders, events would be full of holes if not true. Not to mention all the prophecy going on record in written form centuries before events actually took place. I close with these words, Jesus is the leader you can trust. He has the power, the willingness, and the skill to lead you out of the fear and doubt that has you bound. He cares for you, and he'll always be true. When you come to Jesus, you will not hear the shaming, how could you, but the leading, why would you? Don't stay in your pit of despair. Come by faith to Jesus today. God, thank you for this account. Thank you for your proof of love in my life. I have come to know and believe the love that God has for me. It's the bedrock I build my life on. It's the greatest news of every day of my life. It informs how I live and move and have my being. God, I pray for people watching right now that if they've never done so, that they would abandon their life of sinful self-leadership, self-rule that has them stuck in fear and doubt or smugness and ignorance. God, that they would abandon the life of sin and trust your leadership. Receive the gift of being led. Receive the gift of of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And God, that's just sort of some of it. 
God, thank you for receiving us. We receive you today. Thank you for these words to us, peace, shalom, wholeness, restoration to you. Amen.